said, come over and do a day stage and we'll see how it goes. I went over and it was hectic. It was like nothing I've ever experienced before. And it was super, 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 super interesting. I didn't have a look at any of the plates. I have no idea what they were cooking. But it was interesting because the buzz, the speed, the efficiency, the way that the whole restaurant was working. So I think I got kind of hooked on that rather than just the cooking. And that was when I thought like, okay, you know what? I could do this. It was exciting. It was quite adrenaline filled. Hey everyone. Welcome to episode 29 of the So This Is My Wife podcast. I'm your host and producer, Lingya. And today's guest is Darren Teo, a lecturer turned head chef of Tewakan, the first Malaysian restaurant ranked on Asia's 50 best restaurants list. Darren talks about his journey from loving to do things with his hands in his childhood to going to a hotel school and eventually working in restaurants across Kuala Lumpur and Singapore, where he was exposed to high-level French cooking and acquired a love for using fresh local produce. We dive deep into the workings of Dewakan, how it came about, where they source their local ingredients and incorporate them in ways that most might not consider. And finally, here's one big piece of advice for those aspiring to also become cooks. Are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. My childhood was running around. I mean, like we climbed mango trees out of my grandmother's house and we used to go to the playground. I spent a lot of time there. We watched Tamil movies. She would feed us food. I think you were considering at one point to do fashion design or graphic design. Yeah. Well, I think someone else who's had like a very severe influence in my life was my dad. And he was responsible for crafting the idea of a career. And uh, I was always better with my hands than I was with discipline in doing homework. He helped me explore a few things that would have made sense to me. At that time, I thought of fashion design as an interesting way to have a creative output. And graphic design was also because at that time, you were messing around with like Adobe, Photoshop, and Illustrator. This was like almost 20 years ago. So it was very rudimentary work at that time. Like there was Flash and there were a few things that you could just download and you could just mess around with at that time. And that looked like it would have been interesting to do as well. I think another aspect that we kind of looked at was the aspect of whether you had any commercial value. And it seemed that it was a lesser commercial value than maybe say going into hospitality. Because around that time, it coincided with an economic downturn, right? As you were trying to decide where you wanted to study yeah, when it was, what, 97, 98, the industries were recovering. And also, I think my generation was a fairly large generation. So there were a lot of people who were also doing things like graphic design. So, I mean, if you're going to be one in like a couple of hundred thousand or a couple of ten thousands, that's just going to narrow down your chances. You said you were always good with your hands. What do you mean by that? Were you always making things like chairs? What did that mean? 
I think I can say this quite confidently now. I'm quite inquisitive by nature. And that has allowed me to pursue certain things. It's always that can-do attitude. So if there's something that I figure like that's something that we could do or that's something that you could break down or reverse engineer, then I'll do that. And you get quite real success. When you're young, you learn how to make slingshots and you make props with discarded containers and things like this. And you could always fashion something out of your hands. Yeah, I think the closest I came to making something was Kamar Hair and Hidup, where they make you make a ruler out of a block of wood. It was like odd. I did better with like the sewing and cooking part than the actual mm. woodwork part. I remember I think we split it. Maybe that was in Form 3 or something like that. I think I did better than actually doing the carpentry work. But I mean, fast forward about five or ten years later, I can do quite a fairly bit of <laughs> carpentry work now. I think it's also very natural for me to figure things out in the physical and then find a way to translate that out. But I think for people who make stuff, I think it's very rarely the end product. Like I don't have a lot of attachment to the things that I make. I think I maybe have kept maybe one or two things. But a lot of times I make and then I give them away. I don't have an attachment to it. I do enjoy the process of figuring things out and that small little success when you do achieve it. Or when you make a little bit of a headway, I enjoy those things. So what was it that led you to go to this, I understand now defunct school called Bernas in Complex Antarabangsa? This was P-E-R-N-A-S, Bernas. It was under Perbadana Nacional. I think that was the side-by-side option. If the design thing didn't work out, then probably we'd be doing some form of cooking or something like that. But my dad had a little bit more foresight than I, and he said, like, do a degree program. And since it was a local degree, where that's a dual parchment with the Institut Vatel in France, so that's why we decided to take that. So what was it like studying at the school? You have described it as an amazing time for yourself, and you meet lifelong friends there. Yeah, yeah. It was an amazing time. We had a lot of fun. It's a dynamic industry and and very contrary to going to doing a college or university education currently. Before, it was super hands-on. And after college, I go to go and work part-time in some restaurants along Jalam Nusui and Changkat Bukibintang. The restaurant was a brez. It was not really a restaurant, actually. It was a wine bar, a really small kitchen at the bottom. And they made some very, very French cooking, but like very bistro-style French cooking. The internship that I remember the most was at Le Bouchon, which is this uh, sort of like corner restaurant opposite Little Havana. And back then, Changkap, there were like maybe a handful of restaurants and most of them were quite good before it's become the thing that it is now. And how did you find working in an actual restaurant? Just put your head down and you just do what you got to do. I mean, there's no romanticizing our career. It was hard work. That's what it was. I mean, I just did what I needed to do. They asked me to wash plates, I wash plates. They asked me to mop the floor, I mop the floor. Fry the French fries, you fry the French fries. I don't think that there was this light from heaven shining down and telling me like, this is my life work and this is what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life. But then after that, you finished your degree, you went to Singapore. What was the decision making? process behind that? I think it was that time to go and explore possibilities and see what things were like outside of the country. There was an opportunity that opened up in Singapore for me to join a restaurant there, but that didn't fall through. And because that didn't fall through, I was then knocking on doors in various restaurants and hotels in Singapore. And then Lezami picked me up by chance 
and I joined the Lazami group. And within the Lazami group, I had the opportunity to work both at Lazami as well as in Ojadan, in the EGH Corner House in the Botanic Gardens. Lazami, Ojadan, and also Sebastian's Bistro, which was on Greenwood Avenue. Yeah, they were fantastic years of cooking, fantastic years of owning the skill, but also it was just fantastic years of living. I mean, it was wanton living, to be honest, but you live from moment to moment, but it was super educational. What was the food scene like in Singapore at the time? At that very time, so this was like pre-MBS, right? So I think they've always had a large expat community and that's why Greenwood Avenue did very well. Sebastian said Greenwood Avenue was, was very, very busy. So Greenwood Avenue is on Bukit Timah and it's in the middle of a residential area. I would say it's very close to something like Damansara Kim area, but half that size. It was only one stretch of a road. That was quite cool because Lezami had a few restaurants in that area, four or five restaurants that were at the same time there. So it was quite interesting. At that time, Singapore was probably maybe say almost the same as KL at that time. Maybe they had a few more better restaurants. The ones that people think were at the highest level were restaurants like uh, Raffles Grill, Lezami, Ojadan. Maybe Equinox. So this was all before John and all the other stuff that's become quite popular now. And I read that your first day working, that was when you realized you wanted to do this for the rest of your life. Yeah, not the first day working. So what happened was a friend of mine put me in touch with, a friend of mine here put me in touch with a chef who put me in touch with another chef in Singapore. I was slated to start work with them. And then when I meet, all of the um, arrangements to go down. And on my first visit to the restaurant that I was supposed to work at, a week before my starting date, the chef said like, okay, look, I can't hire you because I've hired someone else. So that was problematic. I called the guy who hooked us up in the first place and said like, okay, this is what's happened. So what do I do now? And then his restaurant used to be on Havelock Road. He said, come over and do a day stage and we'll see how it goes. I went over and it was hectic. It was like nothing I've ever experienced before. And it was super, 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 super interesting. I didn't have a look at any of the plates. I have no idea what they were cooking. But it was interesting because the buzz, the speed, the efficiency, the way that the whole restaurant was working. So I think I got kind of hooked on that rather than just the cooking. And that was when I thought like, okay, you know what? I could do this. It was exciting. It was quite adrenaline filled. Would it be fair to say that you realize how you had to hold yourself to such high standards? Because I read the book that you produced and you shared the story once of how you were caught sauteing mushrooms in a pan that wasn't hot enough and you were banned from using what? that. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes, true. Well, actually, the three restaurants that I worked in in Singapore, all under the same company, did hold cooking to be quite discipline. That's the thing that I think differentiates a lot of restaurants from our restaurant is the level of discipline. And it's not a level of discipline like run it like an army discipline, but it's like it's discipline in making sure that every step that you take contributes to a higher quality of the product that you're cooking. And every, whether painstaking or not, that was the gold standard to reach. I mean, at Ojaran, we used to fillet fish on the order or things like shallots and garlic, which you can only cut to the order so that you get a quality that doesn't sit inside and so that the shallots that are not sitting inside some oil or in like in the chiller and losing a lot of its flavors as it's just sitting inside there and you're not using it. These 
really small things that kind of like make up the genetic makeup of a cook that came from these companies, from these restaurants. And when you say fish, I read the story about how your chef was very particular about getting fresh fish because at that time you were always getting imported fish. That's a true story. I mean, we still talk about it, my buddies and I, we all used to cook together. And, and French restaurants at the time in Singapore would have used French produce in terms of like seafood, especially because it was following seasons and it was also what was fashionable at the time. And the problem with that was that it gets flown in like twice a week into the country and you don't have control over what it is that you're purchasing. So if you buy monkfish and the monkfish, something about it is wrong. Like the tail is bruised or part of it was not stored properly or it was not packed in ice well enough. You basically cannot return it because it's airflown and there's no return policy on that. So chef was, what? There's no reason for us to be using this fish anymore or not all of the menu needs to have imported fish. And so he started buying tiger groupers and I was on the fish side at that time. They were called a poissonnier. So I had to process that fish and it was the first time dealing with like live groupers. And if you don't know, groupers are very angry fish. They're very violent and there's spikes on their dorsals and there's like a very sharp bone on where their gills are as well. So it was the first time and I've never processed that sort of fish before. But you could taste it, like you could taste the difference in terms of would you rather have a very nice fresh fish or like a decaying foreign fish? I'm not sure. It just made us think about what kind of double standards we have as a community or as a society. Like I mean, like why would salmon, and we're talking about like 10, 15 years ago, why would salmon be like a more highly priced fish if it's been decaying for you know the past three to four days before you get it? So imagine if you pick a fish out from the farm and then it goes to the butchery and then from the butchery it gets iced and then it goes to like, like a hangar somewhere and that gets onto a shipment and it's air flown all the way down to say our part of the world and it sits in containment again and then it goes out to the restaurant. That's going to process of about three days. So your fish is already dead for three days and it goes to the restaurant maybe on the fourth day and then you're not there on that fourth day but maybe you come three days later so it the fish has been there for seven days already before the next one comes in. But then that same person would then go to a Chinese restaurant. And if the fish wasn't dead like 30 seconds ago, they complain it's not fresh. Why is this double standard? So, I mean, I think that was the point of contention for me with using foreign produce. Was it uncommon to use local produce at the time? Well, I mean, in Singapore, it's a little bit tricky, right? Because everything is foreign produce for them. But it was not uncommon in Chinese restaurants. It was not uncommon in the markets. You probably wouldn't find them in like the grill or any aspiring restaurant. Why do you decide to leave Singapore to come back to Malaysia? I think I gave it five years. I didn't see anything of staying for at that time. So what was it about KDU that drew you in? Because I understand you were working in the cafeteria for two years, right? Before you became a lecturer. Oh. Yeah, so when I came back, I was looking for different opportunities. At that time, the first job I got when I got back was with Taylor's and I was teaching there for a semester. They didn't want to continue my contract, so I looked at other places. And since with a degree in hotel management, that allows you to do some teaching. So I went to KDU and the only thing they had on offer for me at that time was this sort of like an assistant manager for a cafeteria concept that they were putting together. It was supposed to be slightly modeled after the Google cafeterias 
which didn't really happen, honestly. But I took the job and I did it for a couple of years. Before there was an opening and I said, okay, let, let me try teaching. And you mooted for molecular gastronomy. Was that not something that was already offered at the time? No, no. Most people in Malaysia didn't even know what it was. It wasn't what I wanted to teach. There was nothing that I was truly passionate about teaching. But when we were looking at how we could take the hotel school and make it a little bit more interesting, and these were some of the things that we wanted to do. At the end of my tenure was, maybe say it was about 2011, I wanted to stop teaching. And after I wanted to stop teaching, I wanted to leave. But at the same time, they were doing the new campus. And there was an exciting prospect of putting together 11 kitchens, designing them. So we did that. I was like, okay, so that, that's the end. And then they said, what if we had a commercial restaurant in the building? Something that would be interesting to do. And I say, okay, you make sure that I can do whatever I want and nobody gets to tell me what I should or shouldn't cook and say okay that's how Dewakan started and Dewakan I think you envision it to be something like Noma in Copenhagen right Mm, I didn't envision it to be like Noma I mean the first iteration of what Dewakan looked like already was not anything like Noma but I think that we did borrow certain principles from the Nordic movement that helped us to define further what we were and what we wanted to do. What were the challenges that came at you that perhaps you didn't anticipate? I think my own failings, there were many things that were about running a restaurant that elude you until you're actually doing it. Things that you're not prepared to know how to do and then you've had to learn how to do it and then accelerate that how to deal with people and profit and loss, understanding accounting concepts, things like that. Because choosing, as I understand, choosing the right team was quite a challenge for you. You lost two members on the first team and just trying to get that original team to get going was quite difficult, right? Yeah, yeah, that would partly be it. I think I'm also more resigned in that whoever you hire will not be aligned to you. Like they're not aligned to your objectives. They're aligned to their objectives. Like when people complain about like, okay, like staff and stuff like this, my staff are not into it. I have to motivate them, blah, blah, blah. More often than not, I think that it's not that they don't like their job. It's just that their objectives don't align with your objectives. And that happens with everyone, everyone. I mean, you work and you don't work for whoever it is that runs your company. You work for yourself. And then with that reality, people are just going to come and they're going to go. Another thing you always talk about is your ingredients. That's like the crux of everything that Ewakan's doing. And you've said for a lot of times, to figure out the future of cooking, you must look into the past. And I was very fascinated. You've talked so much about how a lot of the ingredients that we take for granted, like chili, actually wasn't a part of our original cuisine. No, it wasn't, yeah. Like, okay, so like original cuisine, like what is original cuisine? I think that the critique most people have of my argument about this is that, like, where do you draw the line? for things, right? The truth is that you need to know at least where the lines are. If all we can say is, oh, nasi lemak is our national dish, the question is like, why? What part of it is our national dish? In truth be told, if you want to talk about what's being consumed and, and that reflects on our national dish, and I'll say it's KFC. Because look at the amount of fried chicken that's being consumed in our country. Look at the amount of McDonald's that are around this country or KFCs that are around this country. I mean, there's a higher acceptance rate for that than for, say, I don't know, some chatty Peranakan dish, for example. So how do you draw the lines in terms of how far you go back? I don't draw the line because I don't know where those lines are. 
So I think it's that acquisition of knowledge. I mean, at least in my generation and in my time, it will be the acquisition of knowledge that's just going to be a priority for me. And then somebody else might sort it out. How did you do that research and just go back in time to see what people were doing? Because Europeans, they wrote a lot about the literature and, and culture surrounding food, but Malaysians, not so much. So that must have been difficult for you. Yes, yes. I think that a lot of the things that I say, I mean, are from external sources. There isn't a primary source anymore for a lot of things because our knowledge is passed down verbally more than it is written. And because of that, things get muddled a little bit or they get lost and they're all these keepers of the secrets and then they're no longer around, they're no longer with us or the secrets are no longer relevant. That's why I say it's about the acquisition of knowledge at this point. We have to at least know something about something. Having the knowledge about something and not knowing, I mean, compared to where we were before and not knowing anything about it, it's better to know something at least, even if it's not as accurate. When you say acquisition of knowledge, how do you take an ingredient and how do you explore the many ways you can use it and cook it? Like for example, like kalua, I understand is something that you use a lot. And it's actually a poisonous fruit that is edible only through fermentation. So how do you discover that whole process of, okay, you can't eat it now, but you have to go through a certain process in order for it to be edible and how to pair it with other ingredients? Well, I think this is our problem. The assumption is that what is common knowledge for me is common knowledge for everyone. And what is not common knowledge for me is also not common knowledge for everyone. So the kalua or the kapayang is something that's been used for generations. You find them in Pranakan cooking. So it's common knowledge for a different subset of people. Just because it's not common knowledge for Glang Valley people, perhaps, we assume that, wow, this is new and novel. And I think that's our problem. We're not explorers. Or at least if we used to be explorers, we have failed to be explorers now. That's why cuisine, or at least our takes on cuisine are so myopic. When was the last time you were truly surprised by something? Maybe not very long ago. We took a trip out to a village there and we were having a conversation with this chap who has a few initiatives in the area. And we were just talking about some of the ingredients that they use and how they use it. Surprise might be an overstatement, right? But it was definitely an interesting conversation. What kind of ingredients were they using? I think we were talking about the para. We were trying to source para because the season was then, but we couldn't get anyone to get them for us. And we were just talking about how they use it and they would crush it with some salt. So the para is also toxic to treat it before you can eat it. So they would peel it and then they would crush it with some salt and then they would put it into bamboo poles and then they would smoke it for about a day or two. And then through the smoking process, this oil was split from inside the para. And then they would store that and they would use that as a seasoning or a flavoring. And you mentioned before that you were talking to other people to figure out how they were using certain ingredients. And I noticed that you do a lot of collaborations with people like A Little Farm on the Hill, Chocolate Concierge, which is the chocolate that you gave when we finished the food tasting mm -hmm. at your restaurant. How do you build those kind of relationships and figure out these are the people that I want to work with and source ingredients from? always starts with a phone call I guess and then a conversation and then we see if we like each other or not and then it just kind of works that way so I think a lot of the people who supply to the restaurant the specialty ones at least developed relationships over the years like Langit like Little Found the Hill 
So they become good friends. And then when we feel that their cause is like something that is worth joining them in, we partner with. When I travel to go and cook in other restaurants, I always bring a langit rice with me and we incorporate that into the menu somehow because that's how much I think it's good. Also, it's not only that it's good, but the people who are doing it and the sincerity that comes off from them. What's the best way for people to know the ones that are doing this work? And how do they see the good ones from the bad ones and support them? That's a tough one. I think you have to know who you're buying from. There's a very big difference between my grandmother's generation and this generation. My grandmother's generation knew who the fish supplier was. He knew who the fish uncle was. They developed relationships. They know who their daughters were. Whether they were going to school, if this was going on all right, if the wife was sick, blah, blah, blah. They knew who they were. And therefore, the relationship helped to determine the quality of the produce. You know what I mean? So you wouldn't give someone that you see on a almost daily basis, you're not going to give that person rubbish stuff, right? Okay, I'll save you the nice one. Andi, andi, haini, udang, So they would do that. They do stuff like that and that's relationships. And then our generation kind of grew up in buying stuff from Vaja or Tesco or Arifu. So it was very disassociated. It's not unheard of to, to think about someone who's not seen chicken that's, that's a whole bird. And I think that's what's missing. We don't make connections. I mean, we're not a dining nation. We're an eating nation. We want to stuff our faces. We're not curious about where our ingredients come from. I don't think we understand the word fully. I think we're more concerned with consumption. How does one change something like that? You kind of have to want to change yourself, right? And I don't think it's impossible to step out of that reality. Think about why pre-COVID, why do buffet restaurants still exist in our country? Everybody knows it's subpar food. Everybody knows it's not great. But people go buffet steamboat, buffet hot pot, buffet hotels. But why? I mean, we think about the quality of the food that's going on in like, say, a steamboat restaurant. $20 per person, eat all you want. What do you think you could possibly get for $20 per person? Grab delivery fees are more expensive. It's not impossible for us to remove ourselves from thinking about these kind of things. You cannot say poverty because if you say $20 and eat all you can, then that's not poverty, that's greed. And you cannot say that, okay, I didn't know I was greedy. And I think that's very important. If it's important enough for them, they make that change and they will stop it. If it's important enough for them. Have there been any countries or places where they have succeeded in inculcating that love of food itself as opposed to just gorging themselves? I think many countries are like that. Look at our obesity rate. I'm not slim and trim myself, but I'm aware. But look at the obesity rate. The question is, why is that, why is that rate so high? Look at Thailand. Thailand has a very unique food culture. Vietnam has a very quite a unique food culture. I mean, okay, so for example, Thailand. Thailand has at least three or four restaurants that I know of, maybe five Thai restaurants serving Thai food that have made it into 50 best lists or earned one or two stars Michelin. Some of these restaurants are just by preserving old Thai recipes. What do we have? We have nothing. We continue to have nothing because we don't care. I I notice a lot of people around the world who's doing the same thing that you're doing. And I think Christian Mm -hmm. Bowman from 108 in Copenhagen came once with Maya and Alan to collab with you. How do you build that kind of relationship with different people in your field around the world and share that knowledge and experience and collaborations? 
I think it's because we've been very true to what we've professed ourselves to be. So we've just been doing what we do and trying to escalate the quality and the level of what we do. And because we do that, people have taken notice of what we do. You know, I mean, maybe we're not famous or anything like that, but when you tell people the story, it's this is what we're doing, this is how we like to do it, we'd like to have you to come over, and then you develop a relationship from that. So would it be fair to say like social media, for instance, is quite important for your work because that's how people know about what you're doing, hear about it and share? Yeah, unfortunately, yes. Unfortunately, I don't like it, but what to do? I think a lot of it's just like fanboying, really. I don't think it creates the market, it amplifies the market. You need to have content, first of all, right? So the content is very important. And if you don't have the content, then what are you going to put on and what are people going to follow you for? And I think that around the world, it's become like restaurants like Noma and restaurants like Farvican or Relay. These are the top of my head. They're all Scandinavian, I know, but at the top of my head. They all have like interesting stories to tell. Instagram is a great media for it because it's visual and it's written. So you can look at it and like it or you can look at it and read it or you can just read it as well. Also, Awards uh, is also a big thing as well, right? Once you got into Asia's 50 best restaurants list, did you feel that there was a sudden spotlight on what you were doing and everyone wanted to come? Yes, yes and no. Suddenly, people who have been saying they're going to come after four years finally came. I mean, the support that we got from a majority of Malaysians was less than admirable. We've also had a lot of Malaysians that have been strong supporters of us. So we chose to concentrate on making sure that those guys are happy. It was a relief, I think. I think it was a validation, at least. Every day and even up to today, I question what it is that we're doing. How reliable are these award listings? I think all award listings have a bias. To say something is tasty is an objective review. To say something like, I prefer this over that, that's a subjective review. I think people need to, to be able to tell the difference between both. Look, I think that the ones in Malaysia are far from being accurate. Lah. If you want to be a critique of something like the 50 best list and Michelin list, you better have an alternative because I think within the scope of what they're doing, they're doing it a lot more successful. Lah. They didn't tell you, right? They just came and then they just sent an, you an email saying, hey, you're on the list. Yes, they don't come just once. It comes from an academy of jurors and then they come in and they eat. They then go back and they vote a certain amount of people. They will just vote like maybe the top five or the top 10 restaurants and then it kind of gets aggregated from there. It is anonymous. At least for us, it was anonymous. We didn't really know. You used to be in Shalam and then you moved your restaurant to KL. How has that move been for you? Expensive. Yeah, it's just been expensive already. <laughs> I think maybe a little bit harder to say because we've got this uh, whole COVID thing going on. So yeah, I don't think what we're experiencing is an accurate reflection of how it should have turned out. But it's also an accurate reflection of how it should turn out because it is what it is, right? I mean, whatever the circumstances are. Could you share how COVID has impacted you and Dewakan? I think it's similar to most of the restaurant industry and we've been quite blessed because we have a uh, parent company that values what we do. So we've been fairly sheltered from a lot of the repercussions of the business, but it has been a struggle to fill the dining room daily. Do you have any plans for the future in terms of how to improve the situation? Mm, I'm not very good at making vaccines. 
I, I think that's the frustration most people feel. And I think every industry is, what do we do now? And you can't do anything because you can't plan for more than a week in advance. You can't plan for more than a month in advance. A lot of the work that we do is reactionary now instead of proactionary. And so for those listening to this who want to help you, what's the best way they can support your work? You can WhatsApp me and I'll give you my account number. You just bank in money. <laughs> if you well, I mean... I don't know if there's anything you can do. At the end of the day, it's a restaurant and it's meant for sustenance and it's meant for having a good time. It's meant for the act of socializing. The best thing is to just come in and enjoy an evening off. I think what I would really like is for people to have a better understanding of what dining is and or at least to give different people a chance. I think the opportunity to eat is something that not many people have. And I think it should be relished and it should be enjoyed. And I think that those opportunities should not be taken for granted. Look for restaurants and support restaurants that have integrity in the things that they're doing. Look for restaurants that have care for what they're doing. I think I would rather see these things happen than to sell an extra jar of like blue mayonnaise or something like that. I think it's far more important that the Malaysians just grow up. I mean, like we have all of these pseudo Instagram reviewers and the thing is that you've never walked in the shoes of the people who cook the food for you. Number one, and a lot of them have a very flat palate. Creamy, rich, and buttery. Easy. I could make a cream of everything soup and you'd enjoy that tasting menu. My point is, why review something that you cannot do? You're trying to feed the ego more than you're trying to do something. And you mentioned finding restaurants of the kind of values that you appreciate. Do you want to give a shout out to certain restaurants that you think would be good for people to be patrons of? No. The reason why I won't do that is because I think we have this obsession with listings and obsession with recommendations. I think we should be far more adventurous and go out and and try a restaurant that you've never heard of or you never saw before. Why do we have to wait for KL Foodie or whatever other reference point and then go and bucket list it? Like, aren't you sick and tired of bucket lists? I mean, how many more lists do we need and how many more entries into lists do we need? What happened to discovering places by yourself? What happened to appreciating restaurants for what they are and not what you think they should be? I think that you would enjoy yourself a lot more, a hell of a lot more, if you allowed yourself the opportunity to have that sense of an adventure. And what about those who want to be chefs? What is your one big piece of advice for them? Don't do it. (laughs) It's it's a lot of hard work. We get a lot of kids that come in and do their internships with us and not many of them make it because they didn't know how much of work it's going to be. And the salaries are a little bit better from five, ten years ago, but still not by much. We don't earn a lot of money. Given the values that are instilled these days, And today, I think maybe you will find this profession very, very difficult to bridge that gap between expectations. I mean, I've been cooking for about 20 years and it takes many years to be able to do something that you want to do. For many years, you will be doing what other people ask you to do. I think if you concentrate more on developing a good work ethic, being a person with integrity and honesty, then it wouldn't matter if you do end up cooking as a profession or if you end up doing anything else, you will enjoy it. Do you feel that you have found your why? Mm, Yes and no. 
I think that we're always in transition. We're transient. There was this very interesting line from a movie called A Waking Life, where this person says that we're constantly in a state of arrival and departure, which means that we never stay constant. You're never just a still moment. I think that the same with your whys. There are seasons for it. There are times where there are more than one why. Sometimes not having a why is also important to not have a why at that time. And then you develop a why later on, maybe. I think sometimes I do have a why, sometimes I don't. And what kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? When I die, I want people to remember me as a thoughtful person and as a person who was not selfish and a person who had integrity and a person who lived this life in the best way that he could. And I think that that legacy should be translated into the way that my children would then live their life. And what do you think are the most important qualities a successful person should have? Be very good at failing. Be very super good at failing. <laughs> you know, I think that that success, success is when you don't fail. That's what I think it is. I mean, I don't think I'm successful. We have achieved some degree of success, but successful has a sort of like finality to it. And I'm not ready for that finality just yet. I think we still got a few more tricks up our sleeve and probably knock some things out of the park, do something interesting. I think failure means that you take risks. And maybe that's one of the things that I find it's not as exciting anymore because there's so few people that take risks. For example, opening up a bubble tea shop in Section 15, in that whole role, that's a risk. I can't see for the life of me why they would do that. But okay, so I'm not talking about those kind of risks, but like being adventurous with like doing things that are different, counter, counter culture, and just questioning culture in general. I think you find some degree of success when you're ready to put yourself out there and become this category of one. Just be that one person who's in that box doing that thing that you're doing just because you're doing it and not open another black bun burger shop just because you saw someone do that. In that vein, is there anyone that you think is doing this well that you look up to? I can't think of anyone right now, but I will say that Dewakan can only happen because we stand on the shoulder of giants. There were restaurants before us who have paved the way, not in the same vein as what we're doing, but in this country have allowed the evolution of restaurants to come to where we are right now. And we in turn will then be the giants that other people, other giants can stand on so that we pave the way and then other restaurants can also do greater things than what we have. And where can people go to connect with you and support what you're doing? Well, yeah, I mean, our usual channels are on Dewakan Mai on Instagram as well as on Facebook. That's about it. Don't want to send me. Unless they're giving you money. Unless they're giving me money, yeah. And it has to be a lot of money. Otherwise, then you can just do it through reservations. <laughs> and is there anything else you'd like to share that we haven't covered yet? I think one of the things that I've been pondering about over these past few weeks, just before this conversation, was first there was the sense of finality. Yeah? I think that we tend to approach success or approach stories in a snapshot of where we are right now. But I think it's important also to recognize that 
there has never been a singular moment that leads you to this point. There's always a series of moments and some of these decisions are great decisions and some of these decisions are wrong decisions. But the wrong decisions also still bring you to this point. And sometimes the wrong decisions which you feel like, oh my God, it's the end of the world, but it's not the end of the world. And being wrong and being mistaken and taking bad decisions, a lot of them are not as bad as people scare you to feel. And I think that our society tends to promote a lot of fear because we think that whatever you do, it's got to be right the first time or else you're never going to make it. And that finality leads me to my second point of fear. And I think that for a generation that has got so much of access to information and so much of technology that allows us to do things that are thinkable, we still do the very thinkable. And that's because we're so afraid of this finality. We're so afraid of making this mistake and we're so afraid of upsetting someone or something like this. And the truth is really that we have ceased to live the potential of the environment that we have around us. If there was anything that I would say to anyone, it would be, do not be afraid, be courageous. And that was the end of episode 29. The show notes and transcript can be found at sothismywife.com forward slash 29. If you've enjoyed this episode, you might also want to sign up to Steamy's weekly newsletter. You can find the link in the show notes, where we also talk about inspiring figures, initiatives, experiments, and learnings that you can also incorporate into your own life. And staging for next Sunday, which will be the first episode released in 2021, where we will meet an inspiring Singaporean venture capitalist who once had a hand in creating the Silicon Valley of the East, before proceeding to create the fourth most consistent, top-performing venture firm around the world in the area of deep tech.